Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Saturday, September 24th, 2022. It's been 3,129 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 213 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. As always, let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess Russia's mobilization efforts to be on the brink of catastrophe due to corruption, a lack of preparation, violating the social contract with the Russian people, and an apparent plan to bring hundreds of thousands to Ukraine in a matter of days and weeks, not months. Second, we maintain Russia's partial mobilization of now up to one million reservists will not significantly impact the trajectory of the war in Ukraine due to a lack of training and the deplorable condition of issued equipment, including rusty and broken firearms issued on the second day of so-called training. Third, our assessment that partial mobilization will make it far more difficult to control the internal narrative within Russia was accurate, with disbelief and rage growing across Russia and the mill blogger space in open rebellion. Fourth, the broader mobilization and breaking of the social contract with the Russian people has further increased the risk that, if the Kremlin cannot stabilize the situation in Ukraine, the Putin regime will face a political upheaval that could result in government changes. Fifth, we maintain there is a risk of getting trapped in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to continued threatening language from the Kremlin on the use of nuclear weapons. Sixth, we maintain the sham referendums will not change the tactics or strategy of Ukraine or its Western supporters. However, Western nuclear powers have stated that they've been forced to take Russia's nuclear threats seriously. Seventh, we still maintain that the continued Russian offensive on Bakhmut Solidar is completely pointless and will not provide a tactical or strategic victory. Eighth, 
We maintain our assessment that as the situation for Russian troops in Kherson worsens due to supply issues and conditions, forces will seek to surrender. And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing collapse. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed it attacked Ukrainian positions in Ternovipodi, but did not recapture the town. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, also reported that Ukrainian positions were shelled. We've updated the map and returned control of the village to Ukraine based on the two reports. GSAFU and the Russian Ministry of Defense reported artillery exchanges in Bezimen, indicating that the Inulets River bridgehead is stable. A video showed Ukrainian forces using a drone to bomb Russian military equipment located in the center of Davidi Brid. This clarified Russia still controls the village after an earlier video showed a Russian tank being destroyed by a landmine on the eastern edge of the town. There were reports that Ukrainian positions were shelled in Arkhangelsk, where Russian forces have tenaciously clung to the southern edge near Novopetrivka. Another video showed a Russian BTR-80 armored personnel carrier, or APC, and a support vehicle hiding in the remains of a warehouse destroyed by Ukrainian artillery in Lyubimivka. The warehouse is adjacent to the T-2207 highway, indicating that Russian forces recaptured the town sometime before September 23rd. We've updated the map based on the available social intelligence. Operational Command South reported the Ukrainian Air Force completed 20 airstrikes and ground forces launched 290 fire missions. Targets included a Russian pontoon bridge crossing in Novokhovka and two ammunition depots in Bereslav. A concentration of troops and a convoy of Russian military equipment waiting to cross the Dnipro in Kachovka was attacked, along with a barracks of Chechen forces in Kherson. The Novokhovka Dam region was attacked three times over five hours in a series of rocket attacks fired by HIMARS. The central market region of Novokhovka was destroyed overnight while it was unoccupied. An electronic warfare station in Kruti Yar was destroyed, and the Ukrainian Air Force carried out destroy enemy air defense activity near Snikhorivka, knocking out a TOR anti-aircraft complex. The clearest video yet of damage to the Antonovsky Bridge in Kherson, which has been fully disabled for weeks, was published yesterday. The bridge deck has been penetrated in multiple locations, with major structural damage to one of the parallel supports. The reinforcing cables, which are a vital component of the bridge's integrity, are shredded and dangling below the deck. Russia dramatically increased its use of Shahed-136 loitering drones theater-wide. One of the Iranian-sourced drones attacked Ukrainian positions in Berenkhuvet, while another was destroyed south of Mykolaiv. Ukraine claimed it shot down an Mi-8 helicopter and an Su-25 jet, while Russia claimed it shot down a MiG-29 and an Su-25 jet. This is the 91st Su-25 Russia has claimed to have shot down or destroyed on the tarmac since February 24th. It is worth noting that on February 22nd, the world's operational fleet of combat-ready Su-25s, not with the air forces of the Russian Federation, Belarus, or North Korea, 
numbered 125 to 150, with up to 45 based in Ukraine. A report in the New York Times quoting U.S. government officials claims that Russian generals want to negotiate a withdrawal from the west bank of the Dnipro with Ukrainian officials. They've recommended the move to the Kremlin due to low morale, the deteriorating supply situation, and an inability to reinforce troops and replace equipment losses. Despite the concerns of experienced military leaders that 25 to 30,000 Russian soldiers and their equipment could be forced into a winter surrender or a Dunkirk-style evacuation, Russian President Vladimir Putin will not allow a withdrawal. We'll avoid Godwin's Law, even though it is just dangling there, right under our noses, begging us to make the comparison. Our assessment in Kherson and Mykolaiv is unchanged from September 11th. We recapped it on Monday's episode around minute three. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was unchanged, and neither belligerent reported shelling of the facility or the surrounding areas. Across the Dnipro in Ukrainian-controlled Markhanets, Grad and Tornado rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, destroyed homes, apartments, and businesses, knocking out power to 2,000 families. Two civilians were wounded in the attack, and both had to be hospitalized. Russian forces continued terror attacks on Zaporizhia city, attacking civilian infrastructure and striking an apartment building with an S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for ground attack. We'll have more information on that for you in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. Two Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones were destroyed by Ukrainian air defenses in the Dnipropetrovsk region. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. OCS reported that Russian forces used chemical weapons against Ukrainian troops using a drone in an unspecified area. Later reports indicated the CBRN event, that's chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear, was in Dorozhnyanka, with the remnants of the delivery system located. The UAV delivered a K-51 grenade, which is typically used for riot control, armed with the pulmonary agent chloropicrin, also known as PS gas. Quick sidebar here. Pulmonary means it affects the lungs, so when inhaled, chloropicrin can cause difficulty breathing and pulmonary edema, which is fluid in the lungs, which can be fatal. The gas does have commercial use in farming as a fungicide and is also on the list of chemical warfare agents. Its use is considered a war crime by international treaties. Chloropicrin was used extensively in World War I and saw very limited use in World War II. Russian mill bloggers claim that Ukrainian special operation forces had a breakthrough reaching Polohi and then traveled east. We can't verify the veracity of these claims, but Russian defenses are thin in this area, and Ukraine has been making incremental gains. The use of chemical weapons, even the limited use, indicates a level of desperation by Russian forces to hold existing defensive lines. Fighting is ongoing in certain areas, but there has been a request to maintain operational security. Ukrainian suppress and destroy enemy air defense continued, with air defenses as a priority target. Although there was an increase in artillery fire, 
It remained sporadic from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv to Mali-Shirvaki. In southwest Donetsk, the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR militia, did not report on any offensive operations, releasing one video showing recent fighting. Combat activity west of Donetsk increased again, but it continued to be reconnaissance operations and positional fighting. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR continued their unsuccessful attempt to advance into Kamyanka. There was positional fighting on the eastern edge of Avdiivka and north of the Donetsk International Airport near Optin. The DNR fired heavy mortars at Ukrainian positions at the abandoned air defense station east of Optin. There were earlier claims that Russian forces had captured this location, which was either untrue or Ukraine advanced east to the E-50 ring road and re-established their positions. The DNR militia released conflicting propaganda to residents. Military officials claim that artillery and heavy mortars have suppressed Ukrainian attacks, so the sham referendum vote for annexation isn't interrupted. A few hours later, they reported Ukraine conducted 297 fire missions on Russian positions through the Donetsk Oblast, indicating that Ukraine can match Russia shell-for-shell and rocket-for-rocket on the front. Despite the claims of a massive artillery barrage, the 1st Army Corps of the DNR claimed they destroyed one piece of Ukrainian towed artillery with a support vehicle and two armored personnel carriers. In the Bakhmut area, private military company or PMC Wagner Group forces renewed their attempts to advance on Solidar after being pushed back by Ukrainian forces and taking an operational pause. The heaviest reported fighting in Ukraine was east of Solidar and in the southern parts of Bakhmutska. Russian forces and their proxies continued General Zhukov's clearly effective strategy from World War II of heavy artillery fire followed by a ground assault, with Ukrainian forces adapting to the strategy. Russia's growing inability to conduct airstrikes and the lack of TOS-1 thermobaric weapons used in theater have enabled Ukrainian forces to bunker down during artillery barrages. PMC Wagner Group restarted their attacks on Udradivka and Kurdyumivka without success. The Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat once again attempted to advance into Zaitseve and renewed their attacks south of Mayorsk. Hopefully they didn't hear Kadyrov's speech about how there wouldn't be additional mobilization in Chechnya and relief is not coming for them. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, the situation for Russian forces in Lehman continues to deteriorate, and the situation is very dynamic. The Borova City Council reported near-constant artillery fire and heavy fighting in Piskiradkivsky, indicating that Ukrainian forces had broken through to Lozov and were advancing north. Piskiradkivsky is in the Kharkiv Oblast and north of the southern tip of the Oskil Reservoir. There was not enough social intelligence to decide on territorial control or move the line of conflict past Rupci, but we did expand the contested control area. Ukrainian officials declared Yatskivka liberated, indicating that the line of conflict has moved well east and north of the town. The Ukrainian government said in early September that they would only announce liberations when a town was entirely under Ukrainian control, including fire control. Based on this information, we consider Rupci liberated.
Pro-Russian sources reported fighting for control of Karpivka. There remains significant fog of war on the status of Dobrysheve, which runs, honestly, almost the entire spectrum of possibilities. Claims range from the town being encircled, the Russian bars unit eliminated and Ukraine in control, a no-man's land with Ukraine controlling the western half, or Russian forces breaking the encirclement and pushing Ukrainian troops back. We've hedged our bets, moving the line of conflict and mapping the town as a no-man's land. There are unconfirmed reports that Ukrainian troops are in or liberated Novoselivka and Stavki. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed there were fires in the railroad yards of Lehman, with reports of increasing artillery fire. None of this is good news for Russian troops in Lehman. Their forces are almost certainly in a technical encirclement. The only viable retreat route remains the Lehman-Zarich Road, and it won't be a pleasant trip. Pro-Russian sources reported positional fighting near Bilohorivka in Luhansk and Verkhnokamyanskye. There are unconfirmed claims that Ukrainian forces are attempting to take control of the Verkhnokamyanka oil refinery. The GSAFU reported continued fighting near Spirne, which further indicates that control of the oil refinery may be in play. Pro-Russian sources also reported that Russian-occupied Rubizhnya and Lysychansk were shelled and claimed Svatov and Alchevsk were attacked, which, given the distance, was likely done by HIMARS. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, neither belligerent reported fighting along the Oskil River, although it is likely that Ukraine is maintaining operational security and Russian mill bloggers don't want to talk about it. The Borova City Council reported a food products factory was shelled in Borova. They also stated that Russian forces are searching homes, looting, and stealing cars. Collaborators who fled the region are telling relatives they are receiving poor treatment in Russia, are considered second-class citizens, are not receiving promised payments and benefits, and want to return to Ukraine, but know they can't. Russia attacked the Pechny Reservoir for the fifth time, firing S-300 anti-aircraft missiles at the structure, but missing. In the Cherniev and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromadas of Bilopilia, Yunakov, Krasnopilia, and Serdina Buda were attacked by Russian troops stationed over the international border. Over 140 mortars, artillery shells, and grad rockets fired from MLRS landed across the oblast. In Serdina Buda, there was a cross-border skirmish with Russian forces and Ukrainian Territorial Guard exchanging machine gun fire during the afternoon. Despite all the ordnance, only power lines were struck, knocking out electricity to 3,000 homes. In Cherniev, the border settlements of Remyak and Khotivka were shelled. There were no reports of casualties or serious damage. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, Russian forces launched multiple drones on Odessa, with one striking the Port of Odessa administrative building, in direct violation of the grain shipment agreement reached by Russia and Ukraine. 
Two Shahed-136 drones crashed into the port administrative building despite a hail of small arms fire, while a third was shot down. Four more drones were launched at Odessa in a second wave, with all four shot down over the Black Sea. The Ukrainian Navy recovered one Mohajer-6 observation drone and towed it back to Odessa. Some assessment here. While Russian forces struggle in the eastern third of Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense is using its limited resources to continue terrorizing civilians and break treaty agreements. Terror attacks on civilians have been reduced to Iranian-sourced combat drones, S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for ground attacks, and a dwindling number of Cold War-era KH-101 and KH-59 anti-ship missiles. Russian air defense shot down one Ukrainian commercially purchased Sky-Eye drone near Jankoy in Russian-controlled Crimea, while a second one crashed nearby. The drones were likely observing and mapping air defense and other targets for potential future strikes. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The United States appeared to be signaling to Russia that they were not taking nuclear threats idly. Two of the three RC-135S Cobra Ball aircraft were airborne over the continental United States and Alaska. The planes are tasked with detecting preparation for ICBM launches. There were also reports and one video showing massive amounts of United States military equipment being mobilized in Poland. Okay, but hold up. Before you start digging your bunker in the backyard and stocking up on iodine tablets, we do not believe these actions are a prelude to something larger. In our assessment, this is posturing to show the Kremlin the United States is prepared to deal with the threatened first strike if required. A Russian soldier surrendered to Ukrainian forces after five minutes of combat. After surrendering, he told Ukrainian troops he was given two weeks of training as a tank operator and sent to the front. During his very first combat experience, it took only five minutes for the tank in front of him to be destroyed by a mine and his tank to be hit by an anti-tank guided missile, or ATGM. The Russian Ministry of Defense claims that a single air defense battery has shot down over 100 Ukrainian drones, mostly Bayraktar TB2s. It's unlikely Ukraine has been provided even 75 Bayraktar TB2 drones, with global production numbers maybe reaching 350. The Free Belarusian units fighting for Ukraine reported they had formed a 4th battalion called Litvin. There are an estimated 2,000 to 2,500 Belarusians fighting on behalf of Ukraine. And on that note, let's move on to news of the Russian mobilization effort. Russia's mobilization of up to 1.2 million people is starting to appear to be the catastrophe we assessed it would be. A flood of videos that violate operational security shows how completely unprepared the Russian military is and how low morale is among the recently conscripted. Nine military enlistment offices have been torched across Russia from St. Petersburg to Khabarovsk. Another loophole was found in the terms set by the Kremlin. The moratorium for college students only applies to those attending class full-time. That was fine print left out of the announcement by Putin and the follow-up by Sergei Shoigu. Accusations of targeted racism by the Kremlin to eliminate ethnic minorities continued. Fresh claims of, quote, 
ethnic cleansing by combat were leveled as conscription notices disproportionately impacted Russian enclaves populated by Crimean Tartars. In one video, as fresh conscripts unload for induction, a soldier tells them to form two lines, with one conscript replying, quote, Go F yourself and your two lines, end quote. That's a mood. Other videos showed insubordination and drunkenness even after arriving at induction. One person recording the situation was wearing a jacket in the colors of the Ukrainian flag, which, to be clear, are not the same colors as the Russian flag. And up to this point, no one in the process seemed to notice. A busload of conscripts heading to Kamchatka carried on vodka and beer, and some men appeared to be well over 50 years old. People continue to complain that they are being activated despite not being in the promised group. A 63-year-old retired lieutenant colonel made a video saying despite having diabetes and cerebral ischema, like a stroke, he was given no physical exam and sent for deployment. Other veterans complained they were being placed into roles that didn't align with their previous training and specialties despite the Kremlin's promise that that was one of the foundations of the ongoing mobilization. Asen Nikolaev, the head of the Republic of Sakha in Russia, demanded that those mobilized by, quote, mistake, must be sent back home immediately. Nikolaev claims that those mobilized included parents with four or more children, which should not be deployed under Russian law. Andrei Medvedev also complained that those being mobilized had no combat experience, He claims that a former member of the Presidential Guard was mobilized despite having no combat experience. Should I repeat that? No combat experience. In Volshki, people with health problems and no military experience were called up. In Volgorod, one man wrote, My brother left according to the agenda. He says that at the Predboy training ground, they have now gathered a lot of mobilized aged, not full of health, almost pensioners. And this is called increasing the combat readiness of our army. President, this is purposeful incitement of discontent. End quote. Many lists were popping up online from Russian soldiers previously mobilized or currently in Ukraine, providing recommendations on what equipment to bring. Some were mundane and common asks from soldiers worldwide, such as extra socks, underwear, and sewing kits. Other recommendations moved into the realm of what a military should provide, including sleeping bags, first aid kits, and warm hats. However, for those bringing their own gear, it is apparently all for naught. PMC Wagner Telegram channel Grayzone was in total meltdown over the confirmation of reports that even we find shocking. Beyond the reports that some recent conscripts are already bound for Ukraine just three days after mobilization— Anyone who brought their own gear was having it confiscated. Warm-weather sleeping bags, ballistic vests, thermal underwear, first aid kits, over-the-counter and doctor-prescribed medications. Everything. It wasn't just in one federal district either, but systemic. Grayzone wrote, quote, If the law on discrediting the Russian army was introduced precisely for this, then it's time to start. End quote. Grayzone quoted the situation from War Journal Z and accused the Russian military of corruption. 
They believe that the confiscated gear will be resold at an inflated price to the same soldiers that tried to provide for themselves what the Russian Ministry of Defense won't provide in the first place. Multiple videos were being shared on reliable Russian channels, showing conscripts being issued broken and rusted-out AKMs and magazines, some with water-damaged and cracked wooden stocks. There are reports among the conscripted that some are already en route to Ukraine. A report in Medusa quoting the publication Rain claims the plan is to not only mobilize, but deploy the conscripted troops into Ukraine by November 10th. Russian men continue to try and avoid mobilization in any way possible, with the line to enter Georgia by car stretching for 15 kilometers and having a two-day wait. Russian vehicles are only allowed into the neighboring country if they remove any Z lettering and St. George ribbons. A video showed Russian officials pulling men off a flight heading out of Russia because they were on the mobilization list. Ukrainian presidential advisor Alexei Arestovich called the mobilization, quote, chaos, saying, quote, it's hard to call it a controlled process, reactions, fights, and drunks, end quote. Our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Gherkin Strelkov may have summed up the situation best, calling the mobilization, quote, ass. Strelkov correctly pointed out that the commissariats in each federal district are given a quota number they have to reach by the Kremlin, and if that number can't be fulfilled by the social contract to recruit only trained soldiers with prior combat experience under 55 years old, so be it. Strelkov's latest doom post turned even darker in its conclusion, wondering aloud if a 1917-style revolution was awaiting Russia with the, quote, Cretans, torn to shreds and thrown from the windows. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is some graphic detail in today's report, and if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Mikhail Odionov completed his medical evaluation in Kiev. He needs surgery, he has an abscess, and lost 30% of his body weight in captivity. Russian soldiers pulled a piece of shrapnel out of his arm with no anesthetic using rusty pliers, and his badly wounded limb didn't heal properly. It lost four centimeters of bone and will require corrective surgery. His condition and treatment violated more than a dozen rules of the Geneva Convention. Roman Abramovich picked up the five British foreign fighter prisoners of war from Moscow, flew them out on his private plane, and gave them iPhones to call their families as they dined on steak and tiramisu. Abramovich worked with Saudi Arabian officials to obtain their release. The revelation added to the outrage expressed by Russian mill bloggers over the POW transfer. One of the released British POWs, John Harding, told reporters he almost died in captivity and was brutally beaten. Russian soldiers put a bag over his head and cuffed his hands behind his back. They then jumped on him, punched him, and kicked him for over half an hour, breaking most of his ribs and causing kidney damage. He said, quote, I thought... I just wish they'd effing kill me now. That was the worst moment. The way they treated us was appalling. End quote. Dmitry Peskov wrote a statement about Viktor Medvedchuk thanking him for his assistance in the past, saying, quote, 
Both we and the authorities of Donbass are very grateful to Medvedchuk for organizing the exchange of detainees over the past few years and for resolving other humanitarian issues. End quote. Peskov was absolutely blasted by mill bloggers in the Donbass, claiming Medvedchuk was no friend of the region and alleging he was responsible for hundreds of POWs remaining in captivity for more than two years. The United Nations issued an unusually blistering report in its language documenting rape by Russian troops of children as young as four and elders as old as 82. Erik Mosa, the chairman of the three-member commission, said, quote, There are examples of cases where relatives were forced to witness the crimes. End quote. He added that some children were killed in, quote, indiscriminate attacks and with explosives. The report concluded that rape was not part of Russian military policy, but the actions of rogue soldiers and units. The same report documented the widespread torture of detainees with consistent stories among the victims who suffered at different locations. Near Izum, the exhumation of the mass grave west of the city is complete. Officials recovered 407 civilian bodies, 202 women, 189 men, five children, and 11 burned beyond recognition. The remains of 17 Ukrainian soldiers were also recovered. Officials reported two more mass graves they know about that will be exhumed after they are demined. Another mass grave was discovered in Kosacha Lopen, north of Kharkiv city, along with a grisly torture chamber with blood-stained bedding. There wasn't information on how many bodies could be at the gravesite. Russian police gave a 17-year-old arrested for protesting against mobilization a notice from the commissariat to report for military duty. It is worth noting that the United States allows teenagers as young as 17 to enlist in the armed forces with their parents' permission and a high school diploma. They are barred from entering combat until they are 18. The United Nations considers anyone in the armed forces under 18 to be a child soldier. In geopolitical news, the sham referendum for the Russian annexation of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia continued. In Russian-occupied Snikhorivka, Kherson, over a hundred people gathered holding Ukrainian flags and made a video pleading with people not to vote. In Kherson city, people stood in line while music played, waiting to vote on the measure. In Enerkhodar, collaborators went door-to-door to gather votes, escorted by armed soldiers. After more than a dozen drone attacks in the last two days, Ukraine stripped the accreditation of the Iranian ambassador and will expel some of the Iranian staff from the embassy. Hungary told the European Union it would continue to issue Russian visitors Schengen visas. It also said it would not adhere to the EU sanctions against Russian energy and nuclear technology. Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, is a close ally of Russian President Putin and has shredded the democratic government during his tenure. President Putin also has a friend in Italy. Silvio Berlusconi, who will likely be Italy's next leader, claimed that the Russian leader never wanted to engage in an extended war, saying, quote, Putin just wanted to replace the Zelensky government with a government of decent people, end quote. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba tossed out a zinger at the United Nations after the Russian delegation refused to meet, 
and dodged several meetings with other nations, saying, quote, I also noted today that Russian diplomats flee almost as aptly as Russian soldiers. End quote. In economic news, Russia manipulated the value of the ruble as energy prices plummeted. At one point, the exchange rate improved to 55 rubles for one U.S. dollar before settling back at 58. Oil prices crashed, with WTI crude falling to $79 a barrel and Brent hitting $86 a barrel. RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market was at $2.38 a gallon, or $0.63 a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures ended the week in decline, trading at $8.77 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates, and don't forget to check out David's Week in Review episode tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.